a very warm welcome to listen to the Refashioning the Renaissance podcast. The Refashioning the Renaissance project is a five-year ERC-funded research project where we are investigating dress and fashion of the past. We are particularly interested in our project of how ordinary people, artisans and shopkeepers, dressed in 16th and 17th century. And we are using various methods to gain access to their culture, including experimental hands-on work. Today we are talking about historical reconstruction and especially color reconstruction and dyes. My name is Paula Hohti Eriksen and I'm the PI of this project. And I'm here with one of our postdoc researchers, Michelle Robinson. Welcome, Michelle. Hi, thank you. Uh, we have a very distinguished an interesting guest today, Joe Kirby, who is a specialist in history of paintings and pigments. And Joe has been based at the National Gallery for many, many years. So welcome, Joe. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Joe, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and the work that you have been doing? Yes, I, I started work at the National Gallery a very long time ago. I'm a scientist by training. Uh, and I started work on the analysis and study of uh, painting materials and pigments, primarily the pigments and the layer structure of the painting. But um, I very quickly was asked to start a project on the examination of lake pigments. Now, those are a particular type of pigment whereby you have a natural dye which is mordanted or adsorbed onto a solid substrate to make it into a solid pigment, and that substrate was normally translucent. And these pigments were used very, very widely indeed as glazing pigments, and they are the sort of thing that give you the depth of shadow when you're painting, say, a red robe or a red dress or anything like that. Uh, and this led on, uh, I did a lot of research into the recipes of the pigments. I had to make them as well. So this started for us at the National Gallery a very long period working with these particular dyes. At the same time though I was also studying the history of materials in general and the history of painting methods in general. One of my particular interests was actually uh, the era of Rubens and Van Dyck. It's a period I still like very much and when I um, see a painting by Rubens or Van Dyck I, I feel I've come home. Joe, can you explain for people who maybe don't know that much about the difference between a pigment and a dye? What the difference between Yeah, them. in fact, the, the whole point about dyeing a material is that the dye is in solution. Now, if, if, if you have a solution of a colorant, you could use it as an ink or as a watercolor wash, but you couldn't use it as a solid pigment because you can't mix it with the binding material, so you have to make it solid. And this is the, the principal difference, that dyes are liquid and the pigments are solid. Um, and so in our project, because we're working with dress, we're more interested in the liquids, Indeed, the dyes. Are, yes. <laughs> so uh, a resource that's been really helpful for us is your natural colorants book that you worked on with a few others, I think, from the National Gallery, which deals with pigments and dyes. So something that we used in a workshop that we had, where we were very lucky to have you come and guide us and uh, lend your expertise to us, where we were trying to reconstruct some dye recipes from historical sources, mm -hmm. but also coming back to your book where you, you reconstructed some historical recipes, but you've also included in the book some standardized recipes. Yes. 
Can you tell us a little bit about those and how you came to to the point of how you decided, okay, this will be the standard, the sort of standard recipe for matter, for example, and how do they relate to the historical recipes? We did a lot of research beforehand on the whole range of, of dyeing recipes, and we started back with the very earliest ones we could find, which uh, are actually from the 3rd century or thereabouts. Mm -hmm. And those were the things like dyeing fleece, you know, sheep's wool and that sort of thing, essentially with um, madder and indigo. And it would be woad indigo, of course, at that date. Um, So we took those and we then went right on and on and on and on into the um, uh, covering Northern European recipes, some Italian recipes... Uh, and that sort of thing. And we looked at the essentials of those various recipes, so the temperature, the time, the way of applying the dye, um, whether there was a mordant or not, which is the, the, the thing that actually attaches the dye onto the textile, and if so, what it was. And having done all that, and I have to say that my co-authors uh, for that book, uh, Martin van Wommel, who's now in Amsterdam, uh, André Verhecken, who is uh, living in uh, Antwerp, they are very much more experienced with that than, than I am, and certainly André on the historical side. Uh, but the three of us together were then able to say the essentials are the temperature, the mordant, the dye, the time, and that sort of thing. So then, we, having done that, we, we thought, right, we will have to decide that the best average temperature is this, the time you would take would be at least this, and it could be as long as that, so let's settle on an average time, which is that. And we went through all of them to do that, but we made it very clear in that book that these were averages, These were this was a decision we made, and if you were to take a different temperature or a different time or change the order, you would get a different result. Yeah, that's something I really like in the book too, especially even if you've got kids or something yes. like you I think you point out it's nice to say, let's do an experiment and if we do this much time, this happens, and this much yeah, time this happens. Absolutely. Or if we add potash, for example. Yeah, so, that was that's very really interesting because the 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 fact you get really zingy yellows when yeah. you do that. So that was a really interesting part of that sort of experimental work. When I was asked to help you with this, um it was very clear that you had a whole idea of colour names which you'd already researched and I wanted to be able to find colours that would fit in with your names. We dyed uh, on silk, on on wool and on linen. Now dyeing on linen is a very much more difficult um, task and not all the dyes that we used would have been used on linen in fact. Um, but what is so interesting is the um, the fact that the different, particularly you can see this with the red dyes, the fact that you get a different range of reds depending on the dye you use. By very simple modifications of the recipes we used and starting materials, we got all kinds of fabulous orangey reds, purple, really stunning pink. Yes, I mean, we have some some very deep colors here as well. For example, for example, the black that was dyed just using logwood and this is really deep black, isn't it? Or Yes, this is. And um, the logwood, of course, is a slightly later dye. It mm. was coming into, the, into Europe from the um, latter part of the 16th century. 
And initially, there were very considerable complaints about it because logwood and Brazil wood, which was another, the red dyeing one that came in from the, the, from the New World, the dye is fugitive. And so therefore, the regulations are, this is a horrible, fugitive, nasty foreign dye and we are not, you are not allowed to use it. And in fact, um, in England, there were complaints in, the, in Parliament, all kinds of regulations were put in place to say that anybody importing logwood, uh, the wood was to be burnt. And then you find all kinds of people saying, oh, I'm so sorry, sir, I didn't know, and I was not actually importing it into England, it was being sold on to France, and please, please, sir, may I, may I keep it, or may I, I promise I will just sell it on. And actually they did, they sent it on to Amsterdam and France and all sorts of other places, so it was used. But this whole business with logwood was not sorted out in England until well into the uh, 1660s by which time the, the government thought, oh, to hell with this, we will just use it as... It's actually a very good dye, it's just that it fades. Yeah, and then we also have um, some other novelties here, like dyeing with the New World Cochinelle, which has also like given a stunning, this very, very, very purple-violet colour. It is a lovely colour, isn't it? And it is, it's amazing how the deep colour you get when you dye with wool. But, um, of course, the thing was, there was an old-world insect that would give you these colours. There were a range of them. Um, the thing about those, uh, and you will find them mentioned in Italian sources as um, something like um, Cremesi Minuto, which is the small, which is the mm. little Polish cochineal, and um, Cremesi Grosso, which is the larger Armenian cochineal, or some similar insect that we no longer have. Uh, the problem with those was the amount of dyes that they contained. You needed to use so much, so they were only used as silk dyes. When the New World insect came along, uh, the amount of dye it contained was a hugely amount greater. Uh, and that meant that instead of just being used as a silk dye, it could be used as a wool dye as well, uh, which was a great change, of course. So uh, once they decided that it was all right to use it, it became a really important dye and you find that everything is cochineal pretty much by the certainly by the time you get into the 17th century so when you say co there's cochineal is kind of what you find going forward yeah do you mean through is that understood through doing kind of diagnostic tests on existing textiles or how do we well i think it is partly it is largely that because um I mean, my knowledge of this comes from uh, paintings, really, rather than the, the textiles. But the interesting thing about the paintings, which is actually relevant here, is that for a very long time, certainly through the 16th and well into the 17th century, they were using, um, how can I say, the remnants of dyed fabric, so dyed silk, to make the pigments because of course if somebody's gone to the trouble of dyeing these things and then you you actually then dye the thread and then you weave the thread into the velvet or whatever it is you're you're making and then you have to you know shear off the tops of the pile to and so you, you're ended up you end up with an awful lot of waste stuff and the logical thing to do is to pass that on to somebody else and this was what was done uh, so a great many of the recipes you find are extracting the dye from this waste material and all the little bits you snip off and all that stuff. This is actually relating back to the workshop we had because one of the recipes we used was the uh, the recipe with cochineal and tannins. Um, yes. And that was one I particularly wanted to try because uh, we very often find that um, there is a tannin content, probably from oak galls, 
in the results you get from um, the examination of dyed uh, silks, shall we say, or clothing or anything. And we find it also in the paintings, just this little tiny peak which tells us there's tan in there. And it is thought that this was for the weighting of silk. Well, um, I did some uh, research back into the guild regulations and I also looked for all the recipes. Uh, and actually, we only found this mention of using this tannin, and it was Ogles, with red silks, not with any other colour, only red. And I confirmed with Martin van Bommel after, afterwards that, yes, indeed, he's only ever found it in red silks. The interesting thing about it was that we discovered in your workshop when we tried this recipe that it gives you a very much more vibrant red. You don't get this rather lovely purpley red, you get a much hotter red, a more crimson colour, more true crimson, which is actually a very exciting discovery. So I think that's very likely to have been something that was quite widely done, and it's a very, very good colour. And so it's showing up in the paintings because they're recycling yes, the leftovers. Exactly. And it wouldn't, when exactly. you have pigments for paintings, you wouldn't usually add a tan. No, never. Ah, okay. There's absolutely no reason to yeah. in a pigment. Why would you do that? Yeah. Because the thing is, if you put too much, it actually makes the colour dull. Mm. Uh, and yes, it will add weight. It was extremely exciting for us to, and a, and a great benefit for us to test the standardised recipes that you have created. And, and we got such stunning colours. And it was also a, a very good way for us to learn more, more about dyes and dyeing and really see how, for example, different kinds of mordants affect the result. We also tried a little bit different ways of dyeing in the colour workshop and, and that was to just to rely simply on 16th century printed dye recipes. And that's a little bit of a different kind of process. As you remarked earlier, sometimes the recipes are quite vague and the instructions don't give you proper quantities, they don't give the proper time. And so could you tell us a little bit about your experiences with working straight from a historical recipe? How difficult it is and what is your experience and, and how useful it is and what can we learn from working from, from one historical recipe? It is more difficult in many ways, because particularly if you've never used that particular uh, dye source before. I think the, one of the interesting points is the fact that um, time is very much more flexible in the past and you're not thinking the building shuts in half an hour, I have got to get this done by then. You know, it is very, when you're reading it, firstly, you, you don't know how they, they work out the time. If they're saying you, you die for three paternosters, you think, well, how long is that? You also have to remember that they are probably dying a very large amount of stuff because they've got a kind of thing like a mill wheel, but quite a small mill wheel with the, the thread wrapped around it. And then they have to, uh, and they're turning it in the dye solution. Um, so time is a problem. Time is a very considerable problem. Actually, um, the fabric will take up as much dye as it can and then it won't take up any more so that if you leave it in for too long it probably isn't going to matter very much. Um, you might actually get a better result as we actually found this with one of the yellows, I think, where we dyed it um, not to extinction at the first bath, we actually took it out and then put it in again in a fresh bath and to build up the colour, and that will work very much better. Now, um, we only, I only know this because we tried it in the when we were working on the um, compiling the recipes for the book, 
So we, we, the background to all that is a, an awful lot of work done by an awful lot of people trying different variations. I mean, all the variations are in the book, but we tried all those variations to see the effect of time, the effect of t- dying twice, the effect of adding potash, the effect of temperature, and all that sort of thing. So it was all tried. Uh, so, and the, without that background, if you come to look at a historical recipe... Um, as I did when I was working on the pigments for the first time, it is really quite, well, not frightening, but it is quite sort of uh, concerning because you really don't know what you're going to get, nor do you know when it goes wrong. Firstly, you don't know if it has gone wrong or if it's, that's what it's meant to do. Secondly, you don't know why it's gone wrong. It's only when you've done a lot more, either from the, the early recipes or from a lot of repetition like we did when we were writing the book that you can now say ah it's the temperature it was too hot or it wasn't hot enough or I really did leave it in for too long or I did this in the wrong order Uh, and it's only when you've done that that you can actually really use the the early recipes and say this is what they are doing when they add this this is why they do this at this stage and even then you sometimes think well I have no idea why they're doing this at all it makes no sense to me and the other problem of course as we found we don't actually always have all these various things that they used and we have pure chemicals and we don't know how pure their chemicals were to a large extent they weren't so do you think the often when we read recipes it seems like they're assuming a lot of, of the reader that we know quite a lot. Do you think that's the case, or do you think in some recipe books, for example, you have these guys who were kind of grabbing all these random recipes and sticking them into a book. Do you think it's them assuming our knowledge, or they don't have the knowledge and they don't know what they don't know? That's very difficult to say, because there is... When it comes to the plicto, you have the feeling that the man is actually sitting there and he's talking to people and he's writing things down. Sometimes the recipes are extremely detailed, really, really detailed, although sometimes it's not very clear whether he has um, gone off and had a cup of tea or something and then come back uh, and done more because, you know, you get the feeling that he's, it doesn't follow properly. But apart from that, um, they are very, very detailed and they're very well described and you can follow them through. Um, in other cases, it's, and I don't know if he was, it was, he was being dictated to, or he was talking to somebody, or he was writing it down from something else, or what, and it just says take you know, this and that, and then it is done. And you think, well, no, it's not. <laughs> I don't understand this at all. But I think at that point, those recipes like that are often an aid memoir. So the person reading it thinking, oh, yes, I know, I know what this is. This is the one where you get the blue-green colour. And, and so it's, it's that one and that one, that's fine, because the rest of it he knows. He knows how long to do it, he knows the time, he knows the order, he knows the morton. So you don't know that, but he does. I think I would, perhaps my last question would be that um, you have been working a lot with these historical recipes. Uh, what can we learn from using and reconstructing Uh, from these 16th and 17th century recipes? I think one of the most interesting things you learn is um, really how bright and colourful the world was or could have been if you forget sumptuary laws, uh, which I think possibly wouldn't have applied to these people. Your artisans obviously had 
quite a nice range of colours, particularly as you learn that from the, the archival work you've done, which gives the range of, of uh, coloured dress that people had. Um, I think also you, I, you really do learn that people had time to dye this. They, it, it isn't as it is now. They really did have time, and they could use time to get the colours they needed to allow them the various materials to um, have the dye extracted properly and the reactions to take place and all that sort of thing. And you could make an allowance. I don't know how far you're able to read this, but I think you can, you can if you have time, you can also make an allowance for the fact that the welds that, that, to give the yellow is actually not as good quality as you would like, so you're going to have to double the quantity. And you can tell that as you're working, you think, mm, this isn't very nice. I'll put some more in uh, and get a much better yellow. And this, you, you are, I don't think you're going to get to learn this from reading, but you are going to get to learn it from... You'll suddenly, you might read something and you suddenly find, hang on, he's buying an awful lot of this, why is that? And it may well be either that you know, somebody's made him an offer he can't refuse, or because that particular uh, stuff he was buying that year wasn't quite such good quality, so somebody told him, buy more, you're going to need to use more. Uh, and that's something you can't know until you've um, tried it, but it, it's, it's very likely to be the case, particularly if you're looking into inventories and archives of um, uh, dyers or um, people who trade stuff around the world. I think what was really fascinating for us in this color workshop that we did with you was was the fact that because we are historians and, and we are so used to looking at the terminology that come out of our archival sources and other written and visual sources to actually try to, to reconstruct these colors and, and the, the, the kind of historical color world. And like you said, our artisans probably could have afforded most of these colors and their dress was very often very colorful. So for us, it was a fantastic experience to, to try to get those colours and, and the particular tones and, and novelties out of, of all these colour ranges. And so in that way, I think that historical reconstruction of colour and historical re reconstruction in general can be an, an extremely unique way to access some kind of information that just isn't available in, in the written documents. And even if it's not always accurate, but it's a very useful tool to try to imagine and, and to get to the materiality of these colour worlds. Thank you very much, Joe Kirby, for joining our podcast with us today and, and uh, talking about colour and colour reconstruction with us. Um, if you want to find out more about the Refashion in the Renaissance project, you can log on to our website at www.refashioningrenaissance.eu. And if you want a really good resource to help you start using historical recipes or standardized recipes, uh, you can check out Natural Colorants, which was put together by Joe Kirby and some of her colleagues from the National Gallery. And it's published by Archetype. Thank you very much, Joe. It has been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much for inviting me. It was all very good fun when we did it. Definitely. Yes. Thank you.